to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be talking a little bit about George Jackson marking the anniversary of his murder by prison guards on August 21st, 1971. Also going to be talking about how the U.S. government uh, has been using domestic terrorism policy to quash political dissent and also going to be talking about the recent FBI report concerning the fascist assault on the Capitol on January 6th. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jack. Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, I am low-key loving the dust-up over the popular game show Jeopardy. If you haven't been privy to the shenanigans, after longtime host Alex Trebek died in 2020, the search for a replacement host ensued. And I can't remember how his name got tossed into the hat, but LeVar Burton, everyone's favorite reading rainbow guy, also known for other iconic roles in big and small screen films like Roots and Star Trek, launched a campaign to host the show Jeopardy that was enthusiastically supported by millions even me. He was finally allowed to guest host an episode and it was well done and well received and it was actually really cool. And everyone was sure that Burton would be the next host of Jeopardy, but he wasn't because the big wigs instead chose Mike Richards, that guy who nobody knew he was, who just happened to be the executive producer of the show. So the big wig was actually Mike Richards. Now, Richards also chose Miam Bialik of the TV show The Big Bang Theory to host primetime specials and spinoff series of Jeopardy, which I didn't even know the show had. But you see how the two whole non-LeVar Burton human beings, one of which nobody outside of the show had ever heard of, replaced one person, LeVar Burton, who millions supported for the gig. They decided to replace the one black guy with two random white people, and you see where I'm going with this, right? Alas, executive producer Mike Reynolds has been exposed as a sexist, racist, mean-spirited cad. Now that his sexist, racist, and mean-spirited comments have resurfaced from 2013 and 2014 from his former podcast called The Random Show, spelled R-A-N-D-U-M. B, and at least he was honest in the title, but the same comments that caused Reynolds to step down from the position he gave himself as host of Jeopardy didn't keep him from being hired as executive producer of the show. And I don't know, this all seems like that P word that some people say we shouldn't use so much. You mean to tell me the folks at the network didn't know about this guy's comments? Sure they did. Just like they and Mike Reynolds, executive producer, remember, knew about Miam Bialik's victim-blaming comments she penned in a 2017 New York Times editorial titled Being a Feminist in Harvey Weinstein's World, in which she stated, quote, I still make choices every day as a 41-year-old actress that I think of as self-protecting and wise. I have decided that my sexual self is best served for private situations with those I am most intimate with. I dress modestly. I don't act flirtatiously with men as a policy. Yeah, she wrote that. 
as if women who are raped by rich and powerful men like Weinstein were victimized by them because they didn't keep their sexual best self private and because they didn't dress modestly and because they acted flirtatiously with men. These two people were supposed to replace LeVar Burton, who I'm sure isn't perfect because, you know, no human being is. But I think this whole thing with this show is more than just the Hollywood saga of dirty laundry being aired and dirty secrets coming back to bite you. I think this whole saga is typically American in the way that some white people can have a past full of dehumanization and hatefulness toward others. But that doesn't seem to keep them from achieving more success and more power. And when they do, they choose other folks like them, men and women who are just as comfortable dehumanizing others. And they lose nothing except for maybe public face and the latest position before they were outed. But black people, oh, my God, we have to be perfect. We have to be charming and intelligent and witty and attractive and polite and affable and damn near a saint who taught generations of kids to love reading. But we can still be replaced by two racist, sexist white people who are closer to power than we ever will be, no matter how much popular support we have. So this Jeopardy thing isn't just about a game show to me. This really is about America, and it's how it's always worked this way. And if you look at the way the alleged justice system in this country works, tell me that it's any different. You can't. The whole anyone but Trump logic had a lot of people willingly ignore the credible allegations of sexual assault against Joe Biden by Tara Reid and dismiss the repeated racist comments Biden has made, let alone his support of racist policies and his chumminess with well, racists in Congress in the name of bipartisanship. Even if he hadn't won the election, none of that stopped Biden from his Senate seat winning that job over and over again. But somehow, some folks are surprised that Biden is continuing the previous administration's policies of using the extremist tag to criminalize mostly black activists and protesters. I, how are we surprised? I'm not sure. The Intercept reports that in March, Two months after the fascist attack on the Capitol, new guidance was issued by acting Deputy Attorney General John Carlin that instructed all federal prosecutors to, quote, include all violent criminal acts in furtherance of ideological goals stemming from domestic influences such as racial bias and anti-government sentiment. The demand to no longer be subjected to systemic racism was an ideological goal that must be criminalized now, right along with white supremacy. That's what Carlin said. And remember that Joseph Biden was inaugurated on January 20th. So this guidance was issued during his administration. What was his admin's official response? Well, in testimony to the Senate Appropriations Committee on May 12th, Attorney General Merrick Garland said that the Justice Department's priority was prosecuting domestic violent extremism emphasizing, quote, those who advocate the superiority of the white race. But then when the committee's vice chair, Alabama Republican Senator Richard Shelby, asked about the attorney general's guidance directed at prosecuting urban rioting and pilfering in reference to the George Floyd protests the previous summer, Garland didn't make a distinction between prosecuting violent acts of white supremacists 
and prosecuting petty property damage that might happen during anti-racist human rights protests by saying, quote, anything that breaks the law is subject to prosecution. It may not be subject to federal prosecution. There has to be a federal crime involved. But if it breaks the law, of course it's subject to prosecution. The figureheads that represent the system that change every four years don't change the nature of the system. They merely uphold it to keep it running. So don't be surprised by any of this, because remember that this is the same justice system that murdered George Jackson on August 21st, 1971, for exposing the hypocritical and deadly contradictions in the system and for teaching us how to fight against it. Freedom fighters like George Jackson and his brother Jonathan and so many others were the original black identity extremists this government targeted in so many ways. So this same government, this same system with Joe Biden at the helm, Joe Biden, who, remember, was chosen by the first black president, Barack Obama, to be his vice president. This system will continue to do the same to us. Aluta continua. Victoria Acerta. The struggle continues, but victory is certain. Follow Luke Mon Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Mon Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. You know, Jackie, I appreciate you making note of the fact that we are marking the anniversary of the death of George Jackson, field marshal for the Black Panther Party while incarcerated and him being murdered on August 21st, uh, 1971. And to begin, I actually wanted to play a clip of George's mother, Georgia Jackson. Um, in an interview that took place, I believe, a few weeks after George's uh, assassination. And then I want to come back and, and touch a bit on it there. This was uh, Saturday afternoon, about five minutes after five. And at first I didn't think it was George because it said George Johnson. So I went on with my sewing. And then about three or four minutes later, they said it was George Jackson, one of the so-called Soledad brothers. Now, nobody ever bothered to call me and tell me that he was dead. And it's, um, well, for the past 10 or 11 years, I've expected to hear that he was dead anyway. So although the shock was there from the radio, I still expected to hear it someday, but not from the radio. Your son died is fairly well known. Do you believe that? Do you disbelieve that? And do you have any other possibilities what do you think really? no i don't believe that because i don't think my son was mad and i don't think he was an idiot and i don't think that he would do the things that they said he did you know these people have for years gotten away with saying anything that they want to say because they have absolute power over those men those men can't even sneeze unless they want them to they can say anything that they want to say and we have to take it you know that did they let any of you go in there and find out and talk to the people what happened? You only took their word for what happened. And that's the way it's always been. What do you think happened? I think they expected me to go and sit in the corner and cry and not really look at George. But I did. I looked at him. 
I saw everything that happened to him. He was shot more than once. In fact, his body was mutilated. George was a fine-looking man, but you, you wouldn't have been able to recognize him after they got through with him. It seemed as if they just did things to him for a vengeance, you know. And then when I talked on the phone to him about it at San Quentin, they said everybody was glad he was dead. Yeah. And, you know, uh, having heard that from Georgia Jackson, I mean, number one, when you talk about the warrior spirit of a George Jackson, I mean, it's clear that he comes by it honest. I mean, this was uh, a woman who lost not only George, but also his little brother, Jonathan, uh, as a teenager following the Marin County Rebellion. And I mean, listening to that, I'm, I'm immediately put in mind of what James Baldwin said after the death of George Jackson. He said that no black person will ever believe that George Jackson died the way they tell us he did. And, you know, when we talk about, you know, how hated um, George Jackson was amongst the uh, uh, prison authorities. I mean, it's just like when we talk on the show about uh, Sada Shakur and referring to herself as, you know, a, a modern runaway slave. When you sort of uh, refuse to be destroyed and cowed by a system that is hell-bent on bleeding every drop of humanity out of you in the most humiliating ways, when you rebel against that, particularly in a place like prison that is literally designed for that kind of dehumanization, then you become a target. I mean, let alone when you're carrying with you the kind of revolutionary anti-imperialist politics of a George Jackson that uh, was a part and parcel, if you will, uh, of Black Panther politics. You know what I mean? And so, you know, we sort of see the roots of uh, the modern uh, uh, prison movement in the life and work of George Jackson and in what eventually became uh, Black August, which we're still in at this very moment. And so when we talk about the, the, the basic tenets of Black August, to study, to fast, to train, to fight, these were embodied by uh, George Jackson. Uh, you might say he was the word made flesh. And so when we talk about the example, right, of someone who, you know, lived and breathed struggle, who knew struggle his whole life. I mean, a person who got a, a one to life sentence for allegedly stealing $70. That was his life that was toyed with by the state for a trifling amount of $70. I mean, I think it just exposes the real nature of what prison is for under this white supremacist capitalist system and how really the prison system and the criminal legal system in general in this country is just a microcosm for how a lot of these different institutions really operate when we talk about that same crushing of humanity that George Jackson resisted. So we want to say rise in power to comrade George. And we encourage everyone who hears by any means necessary to continue to uphold his legacy and to move forward in his example. But we're going to leave it there for now here on by any means necessary on radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back 
So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about how domestic terrorism policies are being used to quash political dissent. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Ajwa A. Ayatoro, professor of law emerita, University of Arkansas at Little Rock, uh, William H. Bowen School of Law, and organizer with the Black and Brown Activism Defense Collective. Ajwa, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for joining us, because I I really appreciate the fact that, you know, you are a professor of law, so you can really help us understand how an almost obscure law that was passed in the wake of riots following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. And let me just correct myself right there. Not riots, uprisings uh, by the people in the wake of the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. have been used by first the Trump administration very expansively to uh, uh, criminalize protest. But Surprisingly, or maybe not so surprisingly, the Biden administration is continuing the use of this law to do the same thing. And, and, and the, the charge specifically criminalizes the act of interfering with police or firefighters during a civil disorder that disrupts interstate commerce. Now, I think that's interesting because it sounds to me like all this is punishing people for uh, uh, um, interrupting the flow of business. <laughs> but I, I, I'm, what is your uh, uh, what's your take on the way the Trump administration used this law that really wasn't put into any use after it was passed after the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, and the Biden administration not only not coming out and saying no, we're not going to continue to do this, but keeping it going. Well, first of all, I want to correct my credentials. I think that my my commitment and work in the movement for more than 40 years really is is more of a uh credential for this kind of discussion uh than even me being a law professor. I mean, I I think being a law professor taught me you know, increase some analytical skills, but I already had a lot of that. Uh, and what we're talking about really is is not about the details of the law, but the application of the law. And uh, so I have a couple of points I want to make, and then I'll shut up and have, see what questions you all have for me. One is, I think it's clear under the Trump administration, we have the, and I'm clear, I didn't mean that, you know, clear the clear report, right? Uh, organization that developed a, a very detailed database report on the use of the law uh, as, as directed by Trump and Barr, uh, the, uh, uh, the former Attorney General of the United States, directing prosecutors to go after uh, primarily, uh, well, I don't know about primarily, but we have a lot of data from the Clear Report on their direction to go after Black Lives Matter, uh, moving for Black Lives activists. And so that it's based on a lot of data. I really have to say I don't we don't have the black and brown activism defense collective has not really uh, has just begun kind of looking at what's happening now uh in terms of the Biden administration so I can't 
uh, really speak to whether or not how, in fact, and whether or not they're real they're maintaining Trump's approach or not. I do know that we have not heard that they have disavowed the use of the the law that Trump used, and I do know that there's a new domestic domestic terrorism policy that has been developed that we are just now, in fact, uh, I just spoke with uh, Sue Udry, who is on with the Black and Brown Defense uh, Activism Defense Collective, and we are getting uh, that uh, uh, report or that, you know, their their anti-terrorism review, uh, and I'm not saying it very well, but... um, uh, so that we can really look at it. Uh, so I really, I think I'm not surprised that Biden has not uh, disavowed it. Uh, I'm not, I don't have, we don't have any uh, factual cases in, that we were sent as the Black and Brown Actors and Defense Collective uh, that we're, we've looked at. And I'm one that, not just because a law professor, but the way I've always done activism, I like to see the data before I make uh, a statement that would indict any administration, uh, uh, not just, you know, whether it's, you know, even if it was Trump, I would want to see the data, but we have the data on him. I do think that the issue really is, and I said I was going to shut up, but I want to make this point. I think the issue really is a historic issue of targeting black people and targeting blackness and the attempt to maintain white supremacy. And we saw the same thing in COINTELPRO with the FBI targeting our organizations or and beyond just black organizations, environmentalists and others. Uh, we saw it with the uh, use of the crack powder cocaine where crack cocaine was made, you know, the significantly larger punishment, but we know that the disproportionate numbers of people, at least uh, the data we had, showed that more blacks uh, use the crack than powder. It's the same drug. Uh, We've seen it in many, many instances where uh, a law or an approach to so-called criminal justice, I don't call it criminal justice, I call it criminal punishment because the system in the United States doesn't do justice, it does punishment. Uh, uh, have always been biased and targeted against uh, black people. But most importantly, I think that we see it when we see the comparison with COINTELPRO is the targeting of blacks and black groups who are are developing and and increasing an active uh, resistance to an education about not just resistance to white supremacy, not just resistance to the police killing our people, uh, but also developing a movement that is building our communities and strengthening our people and and giving our people information that would allow them to be stronger and their communities to be stronger. So I see that, and I don't, I have not yet been convinced. Uh, one, one, I haven't been convinced that Biden is really committed to really dismantling all of the structural racism that exists within even just the federal system. Uh, I, I'm not convinced that he has, so I wouldn't be surprised, but I can't, we, I can't speak on whether or not he definitely is continuing without more information. Yeah. I mean, so then, you know, I have to ask you about the way the Biden administration has responded 
then, you know, they say through Merrick Garland, uh, Merrick Garland, that, you know, the, the, the administration will continue to focus on racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists. But I think, as you pointed out, uh, Adjoa, the, the, the administration hasn't really talked about how it would divide that designation into subcategories. Right. If if in, you know, May. Uh, Merrick Garland at the uh, hearing uh, for his appointment said that, listen, yeah, we're going to continue to go after white supremacists. But then when uh, uh, the Alabama Senator uh, Shelby said to him, well, what about, you know, all of these uh, uh, violent riots, you know, from last summer? What are you going to do about those? And and Merrick Garland says, well, okay, yeah, we're going to have to still uh, uh, prosecute, uh, um, you know, extremist crimes. Is it is it also a situation where, and this is particularly dangerous for uh, for us, that the Biden administration hasn't uh, separated how it would prosecute these kinds of crimes, how they will uh, designate or prosecute racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists to the point where they're talking about white supremacists or other kind of extremists or they're just continuing to lump everybody into the same category, black activists and white extremists as well. I think that we need to, I guess, I guess I kind of go back to what I was saying earlier. We don't know yet, at least black and brown activists and defense collective has not gathered that kind of information in terms of what the Biden administration is going to do about prosecutions that began last year. I mean, they have cases, their prosecutors have on their desk cases of charges that were brought under the Trump administration. Those cases don't disappear because they changed administration. We need to find out what Biden and his Department of Justice is instructing those prosecutors to do. Are they have they evaluated all those cases? Have any of the charges of, of, for those who were charged last year been dropped? Uh, this is the kind of data that we would need to be able to, I think, more strongly say where the Biden administration is going on those kinds of, on, of just from the data from last year, what are they doing with those cases? We know under Trump, they they instructed their prosecutors to bring them. Those cases have not all been completed. What is Biden? What are the prosecutors doing? That's one. The second thing is, I think that uh, one of the things that we've been doing in the Black and Brown Activism Defense Collective is working very closely uh, with uh, Cory Bush, for example, who is developing a protesters' bill of rights. Uh, and so that could be something that would, if we get something passed, which you know it's going to be a fight to get that. <laughs> bill passed in Congress, then there will be more protections. And then I think the third thing is for us to closely review, and I said this earlier, the Biden's anti-terrorism uh, uh, project or program or, or approach uh, and and give that kind of, you're, you're, you're making very good suggestions, which we made, as you know, uh, uh, a couple of years ago. They need to make a distinction. Uh, they can't just lump all domestic terrorism one lump uh, in one in one group, and then we end up not knowing the, their focus on what has been the primary domestic terrorism in this United States, which is white 
anti-black terrorism. And not just anti-black, anti-Jewish, white, right, you know, white terrorism, white domestic terrorism, and our complaint under Trump, and I think that we will could still have a legitimate complaint under Biden once we see what he's doing. I mean, he's been in office what eight months now, and we need to really look at what is what has he done, what has he been instructed as prosecutors to do, and you, as you indicated, uh, Garland has been Attorney General since May. We do know he has uh, said he's investigating a number of police departments that have uh, been charged with uh, uh, ill treatment and deadly force against black people. Uh, but we don't know. And I think you're absolutely right to raise the question. I just am very hesitant to answer it until we have data, until we have more, you know, data. And, and him being in office since May is just no time, really. Uh, but we can find out, and maybe I don't know if FOIA will, will reveal it or how other ways we can find out what is the approach they're taking now to those cases that were brought under Trump that were against Black Lives Matter and other people. Not everybody wasn't Black Lives Matter. They may have been black folk and they may have been white folk supporting black folk. So we need to find out where do those cases lie? Have they taken a position to dismiss all those charges, particularly after the, the, the clear report, knowing that they were specifically targeted? Yeah, and I appreciate you laying out those uh, important questions that we need to be looking towards, Ajwa, even as we uh, continue to see uh, how some of this information comes in. And I just think it's important to note sort of the the sort of broader overarching issue in what we're discussing here, and that's the deeply political nature of the law itself and how the law is applied, which, you know, may be obvious to uh, the listeners of our show. But but I tend to think that a lot of people in the United States think that the law sort of exists in a, a vacuum, that it's this sort of a fair and neutral kind of institution that's, you know, uh, applied equally across the board. But I think uh, particularly when we talk about um, the issue of protest and protest that is, you know, a challenge to the, the state, a challenge to to the white supremacy that is really at the basis of this country. I mean, we see how it's wielded. I mean, earlier you talked about COINTELPRO. And what I always like to point out about that program is that, you know, a lot of that stuff was illegal even as they were doing it. But now a lot of it is legal uh, uh, that, that that's uh, uh, carrying on here. And we know about um, the whole uh, sort of a black identity extremist issue that uh, is being that has been brought up here in recent years and particularly given the rise of the movement for black lives, which I think was reinvigorated during last summer around the the protest uh, around the racist police killing of George Floyd. And it just seems that it's important that we keep an eye on these things uh, instead of, uh, you know, in terms of seeing how the politics of law and law application plays out, because I think historically we have seen uh, the black liberation struggle painted as a national security threat and an existential threat. Um, to the the U.S. as a whole. And we've seen people, you know, railroaded into prison and outright assassinated as a result. You know what I mean? And so I think this is why it's important to sort of really be paying attention to to what's happening here, particularly as these uh, issues keep uh, going on, as they could stand to have some uh, pretty serious implications as history shows us. I agree with you, but I think the way you're presenting it suggests that there has been a time when blacks have not been targeted by this punishment system in the United States. There has never been a time. 
since enslavement, there has never been a time where we were not targeted. This is not new. How they're doing it changes when they get more sophisticated or more sophisticated equipment or, you know, all of that. But this is not new. The punishment system in the United States has never been one that has treated black and white, and we'll do the, the binary of black and white, and other groups of color kind of fall on closer to black than white. But it, if we just look at black and white, this system has never, ever treated us the same. We have data back Higginbotham, Judge Higginbotham, rest his soul, wrote a book that showed how in prior to the founding of the United States, blacks and whites were treated differently. Uh, something that was a crime for blacks was sometimes no crime at all for whites. Or a slap on the hand, which we see now. We see how black people continue the continue to be targeted when we rise up or not even rise up, when we even begin organizing and talking about louder than, you know, outside of the quiet church and sometimes in the church or so those offices, people begin hearing. That's what happened to Fred Hampton. Fred Hampton wasn't murdered because he was organizing just black folk. He was murdered because he was broadening the movement to include white folk who wanted to support the work. And we're also victimized by capitalism and white supremacist uh, viewpoints. So this is not new. My point is, and my only point is, it's not disagreeing that this is problematic. It's not disagreeing that this is something that we must pay attention to. And I really thank uh, the two of you for bringing uh, many times. I mean, we, we talked about the, the black identity extremists two years ago. You see, so I appreciate the program. All I'm saying is we need to do, BBADC needs to do, gather more data. Let's see what Biden is doing. Uh, the point is, I don't think it helps us. It doesn't help us to make the formal, or, or make, it doesn't help our, uh, the organization, our, our credibility to say this is what Biden is doing when we don't know. All we know is he has not disavowed, you're absolutely right, he has not disavowed the use of that act. But the use of that act in and of itself may not be bad. I don't know. I think all those laws are bad, but that's just my bias. Uh, but and it's not a bias. It's just from what we know in history. Uh, and the law was created, as Jackie or you said earlier, how it was created. But we need to find out. The, the BBADC needs to know what is he doing? Is he using it? How is he using it? We knew how Trump was using it. We knew how Trump was targeting black we knew that even before we, we had several reports even before the clear report came out with this extremely valuable data. And we need to we need to find out. But you're absolutely right. I mean, if anyone in your audience thinks that the criminal punishment system in this country has ever been fair, we have studies that show that that I did. I was a lead on in Arkansas around homicides and manslaughter. 
time and time again, similarly situated, which means white folk committed a, a, a murder and a black person committed a murder and had similar backgrounds, similar crimes, and the black person got death or life without parole, and the white person got life or got a, a term of years. This is not, this is, targeting of us is, that's what they do, and we have to stop it. So I like your program because we have to stop it. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Adjua, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there. We'll move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Smuttick in Washington, D.C., but we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about uh, reports from the FBI regarding the January 6th attack on the Capitol. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by Brian Becker, host of the Socialist Program. Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And Brian, uh, Reuters has released uh, an article here saying that the FBI didn't find much evidence that uh, the armed racist attack on the U.S. Capitol here in Washington, D.C. back on January 6, 2021, um, was in fact coordinated or was purposefully carried out uh, in order to overturn uh, the presidential election that just took place. Uh, one unnamed former senior law enforcement official told Reuters, quote, 90 to 95 percent of these cases are one off. Uh, then you have five percent, maybe, of these militia groups that were more closely organized, but there was no grand scheme. According to this piece, uh, uh, investigators with the FBI did find some groups of protesters, including those uh, a part of and affiliated with uh, far-right organizations like the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, that did in fact uh, aim to break into the Capitol, but they said they weren't able to find any evidence that they had any real plans about what to do when they got in there. And now, Brian, you know, I want to reiterate something that um, we've sort of described uh, the January 6th attack as here on the show uh, consistently since it happened. I know you all at the Socialist Program have as well. And that's that, you know, what happened on January 6th was a, a, a seditious conspiracy ordered by the uh, sitting president of the United States, Donald Trump. And just to refresh folks' memory, a seditious conspiracy is defined as, quote, if two or more persons in any state or territory or in any place subject to the jurisdiction of the United States conspire to overthrow, put down, or to destroy by force the government of the United States or to levy war against them or to oppose by force the authority thereof, or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States, or by force to seize, take, or possess any property of the United States contrary to the authority thereof, they shall each be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than 20 years or both. And I would say that that pretty squarely fits what happened on uh, January 6th. I mean, there's so much uh, that went on, a lot of things that sort of, uh, I think, point to the possibility of a 
high level of collusion um, of different institutions that happened that day. Uh, but Brian, I'm just curious how all this is striking you in terms of how these reports are coming out at this point. Well, I, I think it's important that you read the actual language for seditious conspiracy. And, and, and it helps us understand and sort of go back and look at this from a, from a big picture point of view. The FBI and the media reporting of the FBI's conclusions that there was not a pre-planned conspiracy, that this was kind of a one-off, almost becomes surreal because what the media and what the FBI is pointing to are the, the people who have been arrested. The people who have been arrested, many of them are very just kind of one-off people. Their president told them that the election had been stolen. They came to Washington, D.C. at the time that Congress was about to certify the election outcome. The president told them that they had to fight, that they shouldn't be weak. He told them to march on the on the Capitol building, and he would meet them there. He said that in his speech, I'll see you there. So these people, many of those who are arrested, sort of the rank and file, many of whom, by the way, because the Capitol Police let them out, they actually held their hands and let them out uh, halfway through or around four o'clock that day. Uh, a lot of the, the key, most militant organizers were not arrested at that time. So a lot of the people who were arrested were people sort of milling about or violating the curfew or violating the injunction about using that space. Uh, and again, many of them are very, very, very low level. So if you look at those people who have been arrested and you can and you sort of reconstruct their stories, you can you can kind of see why it doesn't look like a vast planned insurrection. But if you think about it in terms of what actually happened, that as you pointed out, Donald Trump and his entourage, including Giuliani, and forces within the White House and forces within the Pentagon, certainly the the appointees of Trump, and all of the other uh, elements of this movement that Trump organized to overturn election outcomes, both at the state level and finally by uh, forcing Congress not to certify the election outcome on January 6th, there was an effort to stop the electoral victory that had been acquired by Joe Biden. Biden won by 7 million votes, and he narrowly won the Electoral College, just as Trump narrowly won the Electoral College the year before uh, the, the election before. And this was clearly an effort by Trump to disrupt the effort or the, the, the plan, the constitutionally mandated plan of the Congress to certify the election outcome. So there's the seditious conspiracy. So you have the, the truth hiding in plain sight. You don't need actually a, a deep dive FBI investigation. You just need to look what, what actually happened. And you know, think about Trump calling the uh, Secretary of State in Georgia and saying, you know, we need to we need to change the election outcome. You know, we need 12,000 votes. Do it. I mean, what is this but an effort by Trump to undo the election outcome? And then the only reason people came to Washington on January 6th 
to march in their tens of thousands to the Capitol was to prevent Congress from carrying out uh, the activity which would have certified that Trump lost and that Biden would be the next president. It's obvious. It's hidden in plain sight. And Brian, doesn't this uh, um, doesn't this article or this statement from the FBI, doesn't it fly in the face of the evidence that they themselves said they had about weeks and weeks of uh, planning and coordination on social media by uh, some individual people, but yes, definitely by people who were connected to organizations who once Trump lost the election and he started, uh, um, you know, this stop the steal thing and other folks around him, uh, Roger Stone and Alex Jones included, then didn't the FBI say that they had evidence of all of these emails of these people who were not only planning to come to the U.S. Capitol to uh, overturn the election results or to stop the certification of the election results. But wasn't there also evidence of uh, uh, violence that was pl- being planned on social media that the FBI itself put in a report uh, in their own investigation? So aren't they contradicting themselves yet again? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, January 6th was a Wednesday, right? On January 4th, Monday night, there was an emergency meeting convened by the FBI along with other intelligence services because of these reports that people were coming on January 6th uh, for what Trump himself described as something that would be a wild day and that they were talking on all of these right-wing channels about how they were coming, they were going to breach the Capitol, They were bringing, in some cases, many cases, actually, weapons, uh, that they were ready for war. This was the kind of updates that the FBI had in their possession that required them to convene an emergency meeting on Monday, two days before January 6th. Now, on January 3rd, all the living secretaries of defense wrote that op-ed, that article, where they warned the Pentagon and the Pentagon Trump appointees, that it was illegal for the military to intervene in the electoral affairs of the civilian government, and that it was not only ethically wrong and morally wrong, it was against the law. Now, why would all living secretaries of defense on January 3rd, three days before what Trump said would be a wild day, when thousands, tens of thousands were coming at his, you know, at his request to Uh, to impose their will on Congress and prevent the certification of the election. Why would the secretaries of defense have issued a statement like that, which of course diminishes America's reputation internationally because America's reputation is based on the idea that even though there are conflicts here, like there are conflicts everywhere, the ruling class in America is so strong that the peaceful transfer of power is always a given. Well, they knew that it wasn't a given at that point. And that January 12th, when all chiefs of the, uh, of the Joint Chiefs of Staff issued that letter to every member of the 1.3 million strong U.S. military, to every member got this letter saying, remember, if you interfere in the constitutional process, it's against the law. And they denounced 
That letter denounces January 6th as an act of sedition. That's that. Re, read the language of the January 12th letter from the from the Joint Chiefs of Staff. They call it sedition. And now here we are with the FBI saying, oh, we really looked into this, but we don't see any uh, planned insurrection. Well, maybe we're playing with semantics, like with words. But when you read the language of seditious conspiracy, I can tell you of 100,000 black people or 100,000 socialists, black and white and Latino, in other words, a multiracial throng, came on the day that the election was going to be certified and stormed the Capitol and came with guns and killed police officers or fought them in a way that ended up with their, their death. And when bombs were planted on both sides of the Capitol, which is what happened and that the, the person who planted the bombs or persons have not been arrested yet. If you look at all of that and you think about how would this be played out if it wasn't right wing, predominantly white, predominantly conservative, in the main white supremacist forces at the Capitol, how would the FBI be labeling or branding this? And just to ask the question, answers the question, the fact of the matter is the FBI and the Capitol Police and the Pentagon and the Metropolitan Police, none of them really were alarmed about what was happening even when they convened the meeting on Monday, January 4th, because they kind of think of these people as their people. And that's the reality. And that's why there's this minimizing going on uh, today. Yeah, and you know, Brian, this shift in narrative around January 6th, I mean, it reminds me of um, uh, back in June, uh, the the Washington Post released support that was saying that when um, officers uh, violently cleared protesters from Black Lives Matter Plaza on June 1st, it wasn't so that Trump could take that uh, bizarre picture in front of St. John's Church, it's because they had to put up a fence. And so it's just like we, it's like they, they keep trying to just sort of completely turn what really happened on its ear uh, in a number of ways. But what I really want to talk about, Ryan, excuse me, Brian, is what uh, January 6th means politically, because to me, it's sort of an example of the deep political crisis that the United States finds itself in at this point. I think the rebellion against racism in the wake of the uh, police killing of George Floyd last year was another expression of this. And I think January 6th was as well, just in in a reactionary sense, because when we look at the state of the United States right now, right, over 600,000 people dead from the coronavirus. And now there's a, a narrative emerging from officials that that wants the American people to blame the spread of the disease, not on the government that has bungled it horribly, but on the people who are uh, unvaccinated. So almost like another divide and conquer tactic that's um, emerging here. Um, and, you know, pretty soon here, the, the eviction moratorium uh, will be ended after a uh, uh, Cori Bush's sit in at the Capitol and a serious public push with the support she got there. We're hearing renewed calls or uh, cancel the rent and things like this. So people's material conditions um, in a number of ways are really deteriorating here in the U.S. And it feels like these sorts of expressions, January 6th being one, like I say, the, the George Floyd protest being another. I mean, what do you think this means, Brian, in terms of um, a real response or the prospects for a movement around so many of, frankly, of the crimes of the capitalist system and of the U.S. ruling class that have been exploding in a number of different ways. And although, I mean, these 
frankly, can be downright scary times that we're living in. I mean, I neglected to mention uh, the climate issues as well, but it also feels like there's a lot of opportunity there to really make a a, a real push for the kind of deep systemic changes uh, that are needed in this country right now. You know, revolutions happen um, before revolutions happen. They're considered impossible. And after they happen, they're considered to have been inevitable. People look back and say, oh, we could see that coming. But beforehand, the routine of life, the, the normalcy of life, the conservatism of routine uh, makes people think revolution is either far, far off or, you know, just not real, not not a real prospect. But the key to revolution is always whether or not the existing government has legitimacy. In 2016, when Trump won narrowly, after having lost the popular vote, but narrowly winning a few states, the Democrats spent the next three years saying the election was illegitimate because the only reason Donald Trump could be president was because of Russia and the Kremlin or the Internet Research Agency. You know, the Democrats thought the election was not legitimate. And then when Trump lost the election narrowly, the Republicans were told it's stolen, it's illegitimate. So you have the Democrats and the Republicans now in the two consecutive elections telling their people the election is completely illegitimate, which means why should anybody consider the government to be legitimate when the government itself and the two ruling class parties challenge the legitimacy of the process? So you know, that has had a profound impact on provide in, in creating cynicism and skepticism about anything the government says. And so now when the government, I think, advocates that people get vaccinated, and even Trump was, you know, advocating vaccination the other day, he started to be booed by uh, the people in his crowd because the level of cynicism and skepticism about the government has been has become so overwhelming. And that is very dangerous. I mean, some people are not vaccinated because the government didn't, the FDA didn't approve any of the vaccines. But now, as of this morning, uh, Pfizer won approval of the FDA. There may be other reasons why there's vaccine hesitancy. I'm not talking about the people who promote uh, the ideas that you shouldn't get vaccinated or promote the idea you shouldn't wear a mask as if it's a an attack on freedom. I, I, I hold those people responsible. But the government's mismanagement of COVID, the government's failure to communicate properly with people, the fact that the FDA has not given full approval of the drugs, all of that you know, calls into question the government's legitimacy. Then you have 6.8 million families facing eviction right now. The moratorium on evictions may come to an end this week. Hopefully not. Hopefully people will organize and fight for it. But even if with the moratorium, at the end of the day, you still have all that back rent. People are facing 20, 30, 40, sometimes $50,000 in unpaid back rent. And the government, which could do something to give stability to them, isn't doing it. That something would be there's $60 billion in unpaid rent in America right now. That's 8% of the defense budget. If you said in order to have help the security of the people who are facing eviction, we're going to pay their rent. We're going to cancel their rent. We're going to we're going to subsidize that, and we'll take it from the defense budget. That makes sense, but the government won't do it because they're addicted to war, addicted to militarism, addicted to capitalism, which is the root of the problem. And that's why I actually do think that when the current government lacks legitimacy, the social system, the economic system of capitalism is being challenged. 
uh, alternatives uh, must be considered. And, and of course, I believe as a socialist that the socialist, the prospects for socialism will grow. Yeah, I tend to agree. Well, we thank you so much, Brian, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. But we will be back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Monday, August 23rd, 2021. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call if by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions, or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today, anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you, but that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can reach out. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices and comrades, that's you, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. They can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But they can also hit us up on social media on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube at BAM Necessary. Then our shows can be downloaded on iTunes, where we would very much appreciate a good rating. They can hear us on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Spreaker, Stitcher, and lots of other podcast platforms. They can listen to us live on SputnikNews.com and on their radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And we're very happy to be joined for the hour today by Maurice Cook, the founder of Serve Your City. Maurice, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, it's good to hear your voice, Sean and Jackie. Uh, God bless the two of you. I miss you all. We haven't seen each other in a couple minutes, but but it's so happy to be here with you all this afternoon. Well, it's good to hear from you too, brother. And, you know, Maurice, the other day I was walking around here in the uh, downtown D.C. area where, uh, you know, the uh, Sputnik office is, and I noticed something. It seems to me, and I'm curious if you've noticed something similar, that the homeless encampments around D.C. are growing larger, and there also appear to be uh, new encampments where there weren't any before. And the Washington Post uh, recently published an article uh, uh, talking about the encampments and was saying that uh, chronic homelessness is sort of on the rise, uh, even as, if I'm not mistaken, the uh, homeless population is uh, somewhat lower than it was previously. And this is also coming as some six and a half million renter households in the United States 
are uh, behind on rent. And I wanted to touch on this because, you know, I was recently talking to some organizers from different parts of the country. And it seems that all over the U.S., there seems to be a kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A kind of gap, if you will. Let's call it a communication gap between the, the homeless struggle in cities and the housing struggle in different cities. And I don't necessarily think it's malicious. I think if we take a look, there are lots of different wings of the movement that should logically, you know, be in uh, contact and communication with each other, but maybe aren't. But given the moment that we're in right now uh, with the pandemic and the profound impact that that is having on the issue of housing, on the issue of hunger and on the issue of homelessness, it just seems like it's very important to make those connections. You know what I mean? And so as someone who does a lot of work around this issue, I'm just wondering how this uh, uh, encampment issue is striking you, the homeless issue, how that's been um, sort of playing out under the pandemic and how you see it as connected to the broader housing justice issue, which I should mention, you know, with the eviction moratorium uh, reportedly supposed to be up, I believe, in early October, not that long from now. And, and, you know, we're hearing renewed calls of cancel the rent and things like that, that we first heard um, after the pandemic first escalated. But, you know, Maurice, uh, just generally curious, you know, how all these things are striking you at this moment. So, um, you know, first, that's a very thank you for focusing on those of our people who live on the street. I mean, that's it's, it's so important that we do this every day. You know, I if you remember a couple of weeks ago when Cori Bush and Ayanna Presley and the, and the squad did the, did the camp out on the steps of the Capitol uh, when when Congress went into recess before they approved more funding uh, to to you know postpone um, eviction. And that not that weekend, you know, it started on the Friday. And before all the media and everything uh, went up there to the Capitol to cover, you know, the protest, you know, I, I, I took my silly tail up on up there to the Capitol because that's in my neighborhood. So it, and it didn't take me, didn't cost me much. Um, so I went up to the Capitol to thank them um, for bringing attention uh, to this issue um, of all the folks who, and I'll say it, have the privilege to be concerned about being potentially evicted. And I also stated to them that night, I said, we have to figure out a way to bridge the world that is in the world that could potentially. See, while you're sitting here, you know, a, a couple of blocks away from adjacent to about three to four tent encampments are people that work very hard every day to support those of our people who are currently living on the street and who have historically lived on the street. And not that I said, and it is my perspective, that giving all of the, the, getting all of the limelight, the highlight, the attention, the focus on those um, who could potentially end up in that condition based upon the, the legislation and the protest and, and, and your organizing around postponing uh, potential um, eviction, we have to do the work to bridge this issue with, with our people who 
should be highlighted on top the most marginalized, the people who, who no matter who they vote for, they can't expect that their condition would change. And, and this city, and I'm certain many other cities across the country, they, they do this okey-doke Ponzi scheme with the language, um, you know, trying to parse out the homeless population from the chronically homeless. You see, we have this whole swath of, of a shelter system that helps them adjust the data on who is actually homeless or who has been temporarily, and when I say temporarily, I mean temporarily housed to, to, to negate the number or to, to minimize the number of what they would deem as homeless to chronically homeless. And so you are absolutely right. There is an uptick of our people who are living in the street. They are being shuffled around from popular dog park to popular splash park. They've been kicked out of these spaces where the city wants to hide the oppression, and they're moving to new spaces. And more and more people um, are living on the street since, since the beginning of the pandemic. And I don't want to minimize what had already been normalized a lot of our people who were on, on the street prior to the pandemic, but there has been an escalation. And we know this, you know, we definitely know this because of the increase in supplies and goods and services that, you know, my organization, Serving City, DC, Ward 6 Mutual Aid, and so many others uh, work on every single day to make sure that those of our people who are living on the street, the most marginalized, the people who need to be organized the most, have the basic supplies to survive every day. Yeah, you know, Maurice, and when we're talking about politicians and their involvement in uh, addressing the growing homeless crisis that we're about to see or that we are seeing uh, amidst the COVID pandemic, I mean, we do have to look at local politicians and the way they have responded to uh, this existing issue of homelessness that you're just talking about, because really the Bowser administration has been particularly um, aggressive. I guess that's a nice way to put it toward homeless populations. And they've been doing this thing called they call it engagements. But really what they've been doing is just destroying encampments. Uh, of people who are houseless. Uh, they've been claiming that, you know, uh, and they're they're using, you know, going kind of through the park service. I think the park service is involved in this too, where they're closing, uh, they're removing the homeless encampments, claiming that they're going to maintain the parks. Um, and then sometimes they allow people to come back, but most of the time they don't. And I, and I remember like three or four years ago, maybe there was a, a very large, homeless encampment under uh, a near the Whitehall uh, uh, freeway near Georgetown. And there was a big push by the uh, uh, Bowser administration to clear that area up. And they they claimed, oh, you know, we're going to find places for these people to live, but they just moved somewhere else. So how do you see us being able to confront, you know, local politicians when they when they have these policies that are destructive and harmful to people who are already houseless. They don't provide any services or homes for them. And then they, they fancy it up in words like engagement, when really they're just destroying th- these people's homes, which nobody should be living on the street. 
But these places are the shelter of last resort for thousands of people. How do we confront that issue? Well, that's exactly right, Jackie. And we have to use, you use the right, the right verb to, for it. We have to confront them. We have to confront them when they are, are planning to have these quote-unquote engagements or clean, quote-unquote cleanings or quote-unquote clearings. We need to build and organize people to make sure that they disrupt um, these things. And it's, 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 it's a challenge. And, and, and I think the community advocates, organizers, uh, radicals, rebels, we have done a great job during, during the pandemic of being part of, of that process. And see, the city, the city they have this, these talking points of, what, of how they're going to make sure everyone gets vouchers. They're going to make sure everyone is housed. And yet, you know, we, I directly asked on Twitter, I directly asked a, a council member in War Two. Um, when they were doing a clearing a week and a half ago on a par- in a park in, in Gompers and in, in Burke Park, we're on 12th and Mass, North, Northwest, where I directly asked her, what is the process to ensure that everyone will be housed? What are you doing directly to get engaged in this process? Are you just passing the buck down to the agencies within the city that have, have failed to ensure the safety and well-being of people who, who have to stay on the street. And, and, and during this, this, with the CDC guidelines, they are not supposed to do any encampment clearings or cleanings or engagement. Now, uh, cleanings they're supposed to do. Clearings and, 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 and tearing down the encampments they are not supposed to do. When, so they're breaking their own CDC guidelines, the federal guidelines, when the city does it. And so, you know, we have to confront. We have to organize. We have to directly engage those on the ground who are being paid by our municipality, by our tax money, so we're paying for our own people's oppression. Those who've been tasked to actually do the clearings, they have to be disrupted. We have to organize, and we have to have a transparency to to the process of ensuring that, that those of our people who are living on the street actually do get housed. Unfortunately, we cannot depend or trust the city apparatus to do so. Because as Sean, you know, so eloquently stated, the uptick, you see the growth in the tech camp. Yeah, and you know, Maurice, it it's wild to me how even architecture and design, like there's a whole there is like a a a, a an an open and clear anti homelessness kind of thought that even goes into how buildings and cities are designed. Because I don't think it's any coincidence that, for instance, you know, you walk around some places and, and you know, all of the benches have an armrest in the middle, uh, which keeps people from laying out there, or maybe they put bumps or spikes in the area so people can't lay on it. I mean, just uh, earlier this month, uh, you probably remember this, Maurice, there was, uh, this was a neighborhood up in Northwest, and there was an, a homeless encampment that was evicted, I believe this was by a grocery store, and not long after that, like a neighborhood association illegally uh, tried to put planners where the encampment formerly was to try to keep the people from coming back. I believe the planners ended up being removed. And I think that that same, uh, that same group of neighborhood people started to go fund me to try to, you know, raise money to support them in this. I mean, it's a really kind of, uh, sick, uh, anti-homeless sort of thing that really to me is a disregard 
for humanity. And so the fact that people don't have these basic necessities like a place to live are considered an inconvenience to people. Human beings with human needs are considered an inconvenience or considered a quote unquote blight or a danger, or maybe they'll uh, drive down the property values or things like this. And so instead of fighting for people to have these basic necessities, people will just do things to try to shoo people away because the very presence of these humans is inconvenient. I mean, it's hard to think of what's more inconvenient than not having a place to stay. But this, I think, is uh, an example of the psychological impact of this system. Because this capitalist system is a dehumanizing system. It makes us see other humans as less than human. Just like the indigenous people of this country had to be seen as less than human to justify genocide against them. The Africans that were enslaved in this country, they had to be seen as less than human to justify their enslavement. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, right? And so that trickles down. And those of us who are able to achieve a particular station in life and some kind of financial um, stability, we now treat other human beings the way that the system treats us. This is a capitalist culture that I'm talking about that degrades the humanity of people on a number of levels. Because you can't treat a person as an inconvenient or or a blight without, uh, uh, in a way, s- sort of undermining your own humanity. You know what I mean? And so these are the ideas that this system sort of um, imposes on us, uh, Maurice, and compels us to think that we are justified in treating our fellow human as less than. Yeah, that's right. I mean... We also got to have to tie it into, you know, the rampant, you know, quote unquote development of, of cities across the country. How many, how many cities that were once urban centers, urban blight, um, what is it called? The, the urban ghetto. I mean, think about all the terms of the 60s, 70s, and 80s, 90s um, of, of the city landscape. And now we talk about smart growth and development and walkable communities and all of this. Um, it takes a dehumanization to, to minimize the impact of what development has done, gentrification has done, urban, quote-unquote, renewal has done um, historically uh, to, to black and brown communities and to some white communities um, across the country, but specifically here, the black and brown communities. And we're challenged here because here, class-wise, we don't have a working poor white community here in Washington, D.C. And so it, 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 it's that, that interchange, the intersectionality between class and race here in Washington, right? And so absolutely, our new neighbors, the new residents here who, who've now found the suburbs not appealing but want to live in the urban landscape, have to dehumanize those um, that they that their complicity has caused to to bring more and more people to live out on the street, and they literally don't want to see it. And so I can tell you, at New Jersey Avenue and and O Street Northwest, they're going to build a splash park and a tech encampment that has up to twenty to thirty people. And 
their neighbors, and this is in the Shaw neighborhood, which used to be historically a, a prolific black neighborhood, which has totally changed. They're willing to prioritize Splash Park over human life. And it just speaks to the, their, their values. They, they pit elementary school students and parents against those who are, who are unhoused. And many of those, many of those parents at, at the PTOs and schools that are around these encampments, they'd be the first ones to say it's wrong for, for folks, for conservatives and, and, and for Republicans to be against CRT. And yet, they believe that their own children's well-being in, in, in the school supersedes the well-being of human beings who live out in the street around the school. And so their children's safety is being used to criminalize and dehumanize those who live in tech campus. That's how deep it gets. Yeah, I want to talk more about this on the other side of our break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Maurice Cook. And Maurice, you raised a really good point just before the break, when you raise the issue of gentrification and displacement and how that ties in to the homelessness issue that has only been exacerbated by the coronavirus pandemic and stands to get much worse as we face down the eviction moratorium, right? Because when we talk about displacement, a lot of times we're thinking about the many black people that have been displaced from D.C. to outside of the city. Maybe they were in Prince George's County, you know, wherever and what have you. They go elsewhere in Maryland or or whatever. But I mean, that that I think that's only one part of it, because when these um, encampments are displaced or, or, or swept away or, quote unquote, cleaned, uh, which which is pretty crazy to me. You know, you're talking about removing um, human beings as if they're dirt and calling it, it cleaning, but that's displacement as well, right? And when you look at both the local and the national picture, because in the United States, there's more empty housing than there are homeless people. And that's certainly true in Washington, D.C. as well. And when you talk about you know, the the new neighbors. Right. And we see how whole communities like Shaw, how whole communities are clearly being redesigned with resources to benefit not the longtime residents that's been there, but for the new, generally more affluent, generally white uh, new residents. Now, I, I, I'm, I've said this before, and I want to make sure people are clear about it, because Folks think that, you know, gentrification starts when you see a Starbucks, a Trader Joe's, a Whole Foods, or, or, or just, you know, more white people than you've ever seen. Well, th- there is a process that goes into that before any of that can happen. 
and it happens at the highest levels of local government where there's collusion between elected officials and these wealthy developers, right? And that's how we get this sky high rent and all this. And as I've said many times, development generally, I mean, it's good in and of itself, but why is it that development in this context always has to mean sweeping aside longtime residents? It means sweeping aside uh, uh, the homeless population and things like that. So when I was talking earlier about sort of anti-homeless architecture, when you talk about how housing is treated in a rapidly gentrifying city like D.C., the whole process is uh, uh, anti-homeless. And we know that there are, you know, clear racial dynamics to this as 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 well, Maurice. And it just seems that there's just sort of a, a plan in place to just straight up remove an entire population out of the city to make way for another, which is just a, a widening these wealth gaps and every other kind of gap we can think of more and more and more and more. Absolutely. I mean, it is this, this, the, the deadly alliance between our elected officials and, and developers. And it, they are absolutely in cahoots. And really, the poor, the black, the indigent, the struggling, the challenged, we are all um, susceptible uh, to their master design and master plan. And like I, like I said, we've seen many of our uh, public green spaces um, where, unfortunately, um, our unhoused population has had to take residence in uh, based upon the increase and in, in the cost of living and, and, and the price of, of, of having a quote-unquote affordable uh, lifestyle and living here, secure living here in Washington, D.C., we see more and more of our people who've had to move you know, into the street. And organizations that, you know, like that I'm a member of, like the, the People's for Fairness Coalition, longtime advocates made up and led by people with lived experience of living on the street have, have pointed out that we have empty units. We have empty apartments. We, we have the space, but because of the cost of, those, of, of renting and leasing those spaces, we'd rather have empty units and have developers get a tax break on empty units and actually place human beings to be safer in these empty, empty units during a pandemic. During a pandemic, we, we make these choices. And so it's really tough because you have, a, you have a, 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 many people who, who moved here for their jobs, professional opportunity, um, who, who did not create this problem. But the, the resources that are created for their well-being absolutely hurts uh, the longtime born and raised traditional black and brown people here in Washington, D.C., who have not benefited uh, from, from these resources. And so the only thing, since we don't create these structural dynamics, the only thing we can do is come together and fight against it. And I can't stand to see elementary school, and I'm going to name names, like Seton Elementary School and their PTO, the parent-teacher organization, try to call the mayor and, and use their, their, their white house. But now Seton Elementary is a predominantly, at least in the younger grades, a predominantly white 
institution or it's working its way to, to being one. And what they do is they use their influence to, to absolutely hurt uh, the black people, the brown people that live out in the street around the, uh, the, the, the land of the school, around you know, the property of the school, which is, a, again, a public space. And I bet many of them, they came to protest last summer. Many of them have BLM signs. Many of them um, are probably Democrats. And, and yet, this big tent doesn't seem to be taking care of one another in the way that it says it's supposed to. Yeah, you know, I, I can't, I can't help but remember when someone explained benign neglect to me, uh, Maurice, and it was actually my, it was actually Uncle Junie, who, who you know, our friend, who you know, who asked about you, by the way, um, and he explained to me, look at what happened to our neighborhood when we were asking for Anacostia Park to be improved. We were asking for streetlights along Southern Avenue. When you look at Nationals Park, where it is and what was there before and the row houses and the homes that were there and Southwest and all of the row houses that were there. And those were mostly homes that were owned by working class and poor black folks. But the city under several administrations, decided we're not going to spend any money on what those working class and poor black folks want to improve their neighborhoods. So the property value goes down. Developers swoop in and say, hey, look at all this property on the river in particular. Let's buy up empty lots first. Then as people pass away and they leave their homes and their kids may not want their homes or if they don't have kids, let's buy up these homes. Then they go in and say, well, let's just offer these poor working class, uh, you know, uh, black folks and some uh, uh, Latinx folks more money than they've ever seen in their lives for their homes. And that's that was the first wave of benign neglect of what we what we know today is gentrification. But, you know, Maurice, I'm, I'm wondering about, again, because I'm always wondering about the politics of it. Now, Carl Racine is the AG for this city, for D.C., and I think he was the first attorney general that we've had in ever, I think. Um, his focus, he claims, is on addressing homelessness. And he said that, you know, his office has... Uh, uh, implemented a lot of lawsuits on behalf of tenants who are fighting slumlords and and that kind of thing. But, you know, when we're looking at the homelessness that has gotten worse in this city, I question his credentials. I question his track record. And I'm looking at him saying he's a part of the same system of political benign neglect, of political gentrification, that indeed doesn't do much for working class and poor black and Latinx and other folks in this city. But as soon as wealthier, whiter folks move in, then the city has all these resources for them. So in your estimation, is Carl Racine and the AG's department really an advocate for the people? Or, I mean, is it just kind of more window dressing on a problem that politically this city and its politicians won't address because the developers just pay too much money for them to do it. Well, I think your last 
piece of that was exactly what it is. I mean, I can't, I can't come out to call Racine specifically because there's too many other elected, too many other elected officials. There are too many other elected officials who, who are more dangerous uh, to us uh, when it comes to, to, to this issue. Paul Racine has done a good job of going after big developers in regards to tenant rights, in regards to these slumlords. And he's done a good job of doing that. He has, in my mind, not shown any leadership when it comes to the rights and protections and security and the well-being of those who, who live on the street. But, but I will say that there is no other elected official um, at the council member level that has done that either. And so, obviously, our elected council members and our mayor have done a political calculation. And the calculation is you can't bite the hand that's you. And that would be the developers. Because if you go, if we have an elected official, we, we don't have not one elected official council member that directly has stated how harmful and racist that this development over the last 30 to 40 years has been and the impact that it has had on the black population. And the whole kerfuffle around the census and, and this, the, the neighborhood uh, reallocation to potentially different wards is all, we're gonna see who our real allies are and, and, and who are those that are, are working against us. And I say, hey, you know, as black people, we always got to determine the three things, who's, who's working us, who's working with us, and who's working against us, right? And I learned that from my grandmother, and it's so apropos today. And with the census, with, with supposedly D.C. not being a black majority city any longer based on the 2020 results, even though we know plenty of our people who don't trust the government and don't complete the census, I'm not naming any names or showing any mirrors. Um, <laughs> supposedly, um, we are no longer the majority um, ethnicity or race here in the city. And that's going to change the borderlines of, of which wars you fall into. And many white people are scared to death that they may be shifted into a ward where their interests may not take priority. Mm. Well, you know, I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you talk about how these city governments, whether in D.C. or elsewhere, uh, do a political calculation and that at the end of the day, they're more interested in staying in the good graces of their paymasters, who are these developers, than they are about actually uh, uh, giving some care and some thought to protecting actual human beings. And of course, uh, Maurice, we're having this conversation while still very much in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic with the Delta variant um, spreading more and more. And, and I'm just, I'm curious in your uh, uh, work with homeless populations, how you've been seeing how the pandemic impacts um, uh, our family who, who live on the street, particularly as the Delta variant has escalated. I mean, here in DC, you know, they put out these uh, ridiculous like like hand washing stations as, you know, a way to help people uh, sanitize themselves. I literally walked past one today. Somebody dumped a, a cigar in it. And I mean, th these are the sort of, you know, non solutions that um, are being put forth by by those in leadership. But, you know, 
how do you sort of see these communities dealing with this? Because I don't think a lot of people realize how these encampments particularly do function as self-contained communities with the leadership and a way of uh, uh, reconciling conflicts and all these sorts of things. I mean, you know, it's almost the same way any community works, but how have those communities been grappling with the pandemic over the past uh, year or so? It's so tough, Sean. I mean, because of the flooding of so many folks who had a non-official contract with their landlords, many people have been moved into the shelter system that weren't previously in the shelter system. And and the only time that trickle-down economics is right is when it's hurting poor people. And and so if you have families who had some type of arrangement where they could stay and they lost that arrangement, and so the landlord couldn't officially put them on their docket as money to recover from the federal government, the landlord the landlords picked them out. And so they fell into the shelter system. These are families. And so families with children take priority, which has just increased the number of single people, single individuals without children, specifically black men, onto the street, from the shelter system onto the street. And so that's a challenge. And the way that it works in, in these encampments, generally those with, who have seniority you know, they, they kind of set the, the rules and the boundaries. And, of course, this this is all kind of, um, you know, a, 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 a street government, a street government and, and street recognition of seniority, of leadership, um, of authority, right? And so it is challenging. And then, you know, we have a fentanyl crisis on the street. I mean, it's huge. It is building and building and building because of just the pressure of the number of people and the, the few to little to no resources that, are, that were normally available prior to the pandemic that are not available any longer, and, and the availability um, of the fentanyl. And so we are absolutely struggling in that. And then you bring along with the pandemic. And yeah, these hand washing machines. We want them, we want more. They need to be maintained. They, you know, either community organizations that do this work, like like the People's Fairness Coalition, working with our partners, you know, uh, and other partners, we need more resources to be able to make sure that everybody is safe. We need more more porta potties. Um, we need more hand sanitizer. We need more toilet paper. Um, you know, we we need these basic items, you know, to keep everyone masked keep everyone as safe as possible. And so with the ambiguity that all of us are experiencing around the Delta and the vaccinations and all of this, you can just imagine it a hundredfold falling onto folks who are the most vulnerable um, within our system, those that, that live on the street, who unfortunately get pitted against those who are renters, who get pitted against those who, who are working class but or are homeowners. Who, who get pitted against those who are our landlords. And, and, uh, and it goes on and on and on. Uh, but what we have to do is organize those, and, and my belief, who are doing and following the work of God and, and, and emulate that practice of the least among us comes first, is our priority. 
And so as a people, to bring our own humanity, we have to work together to build bridges and build alliances and coalitions to build the capacity necessary when our state government, the state, the federal government, it, it, the, the issue and the resources don't trickle down. Just like I said, when I, met to, when I went to go meet with some of the squad, I told them, I said it directly, please tie this message in with those who currently live on the street. I, they, I, I looked out. They did not. I guess it, it's too broad of an issue. But how can you be in solidarity with people who could potentially be on the street when you're, when you're dehumanizing and neglecting blindly to those who already live on the street? And I believe, you know, Cori Bush had experience of being on the street, so she would know the challenge uh, uh, and, the, and the ignorance and the ignoring of those who live in a house to the condition of those who actually live outside. Challenging. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back. So by any means necessary, you're on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Maurice Cook is here. And Maurice, a moment ago, you were talking about issues of addiction that happen amongst uh, uh, the homeless population. Uh, particularly, you were talking about fentanyl and how a lot of things seem to have been intensified because of a lack of resources. I think um, uh, addiction is definitely an issue there. I think mental health is, is often an issue there. And it just, to me, it puts people in a nearly impossible sort of situation because as we've been saying we've got all this housing sitting up empty in dc in the united states and there's a refusal to give them a place to live number one the most basic thing and so we see that there's an addiction issue no resources for treatment for that apparently doesn't seem to be any um uh uh uh, resources for uh mental health or therapy or things like this, as if that experience itself uh, isn't traumatic enough. And it just puts people in positions where they seem like they, they really have nowhere to turn. And they're living under this system that just really does not care. And, you know, we, we, we've spoken on the show uh, uh, often, really, Maurice, about how, you know, when you live in a system as dehumanizing as capitalism, it, it almost drives you towards addiction of some kind or another because you feel like you have to numb yourself to the reality of what you're um, experiencing. And as if that wasn't bad enough, you are then stigmatized and made to feel like you're a criminal or a villain because you're just trying to make it another day living under this system that robs you of your humanity. 
So it's sort of like this hamster wheel of repression and exploitation that so many of us find ourselves in in a number of ways. Certainly, I think uh, the homeless falls into that. And even folks who aren't just folks who, you know, even if they have housing, they're just trying to work and make it day to day without completely losing their minds. You know what I mean? And so I just think it speaks to the inherent sickness of this system and how the sickness of the system breeds sickness in us and then refuses to treat us for that. You know what I mean? And so it seems like that has to be part and parcel of this movement effort of addressing so many of these issues. You know what I mean? I, I believe it, you're absolutely right. It's in, the, it's in the core and the foundation. I mean, this whole idea that land and space is, all of it is something to be extracted from and commodified and commercialized. It, it, it has caused so much death and unnecessary evil across the world. And, you know, we continue with it. Uh, we were talking about the, um, the pros and the advantages of community land trust with folks on Twitter. And we're talking about a, a space that is public land. And D.C. has given up so much of its public land to these developers for no return. For no return. For the exclusivity of people who make the most money to be able to have uh, rooftop pools and, and rooftop gardens and, 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 and dog parks. And, you know, we have to do something about this. I mean, people who, people who say that they care about, you know, you think about the crisis in Afghanistan and think about the crowd of people who want, to, who want refugees to, to be here, you know, who, who feel that is our spirit, you know, quote, unquote, as Americans, to, to, to bring in folks who, who desperately need, who support it, you know, our regime, our agenda, our platform, you know, a half, a half a world away and, and are, are, are facing the consequences of that support. And, and folks, that, so they want to bring them in. And yet I know the very same people who are donating so much to these refugee organizations and God bless them and thank, them, thank, thank God that they're doing this. I know those are, those are some of the same people who want the planters in front of the where the tent camp used to be, so that so that people who are unhoused can't stay there anymore in their, in their neighborhood, and what they believe is their neighborhood because they purchased property. And so, this is at the core of, of our sickness. This is at the core of the things that that challenge us when we are working to build a we. You know, it's hard to say, and some may see it as too cynical, but we we need to create what that we really looks like. Because it's so rarely ever a we, right? And those that have the best proximity to 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 the power, and those working towards that proximity, generally are the ones who, whose interests uh, take forefront. And those who are the furthest away, the most marginalized, the most hurt by the by the advancement of of, of individuals. Yeah, definitely. And you know, when you talked about how. We have to create these things, Maurice. I think that is really the key point that we have to continue to emphasize because we've talked about a lot of serious issues 
um, during the hour today and a lot of painful things that a lot of people are experiencing. And the only real hope to address these things, in my opinion, is in organizing and creating all these things that we're talking about. Because we've given the sort of class and power analysis of the people in leadership, what they do, what they choose not to do, and in whose interest they act, right? So we know what they're about, and we know what they're on, and we know that they show no real interest in serving the interests of the masses of uh, uh, poor, working, and oppressed people. Therefore, it's incumbent upon us to really build and work around these things as difficult as they may be. You know, that's why we have organizations like Serve Your City. That's why when this uh, pandemic first started, with the refusal of uh, city governments, even in supposedly progressive D.C., to really provide for people what happened. We saw a network of mutual aid pop up, giving people food, getting people supplies, volunteers taking it upon themselves to uh, uh, give people these basic things that they need. This, this uh, idea of the folk, the people getting together to really reconcile these things that those in power refuse to. I think that's going to really be the only thing that really uh, uh, makes this change. Because if we <laughs> sit back and wait on the morality of the officials to kick in, it's a whole lot more folks that's going to get hurt mm. and it'll get a whole lot worse before it gets better, even if it does, should we choose to be inactive. And therefore, Maurice, we must make the decision to get active and remain active. There's no question, and, and I hope that, you know, I didn't put out there to the public that, that we are sitting back and waiting for for people to do the right thing. No, we, we organize uh, with those who are already ready uh, to do, do the footwork, um, to make the moves necessary, to build the thing that, that we actually do need right now today, as well as create the landscape, the infrastructure necessary to support our kids, and, and one example of that um, of that practice is is our is our back to school bash this weekend. We 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 have we are fundraising to raise enough money to purchase 500 computers and a thousand backpacks for our kids to go back to school. And you know we're bringing together all these different um, community, both uh, local, uh, black led, white led, local, national community organizations. Um, some city agencies. We do have a council member on our side. We have the teachers union. We have folks anti-union. We have folks pro-charter. We have folks pro-traditional uh, public schools. We got people on all types of ends coming together for, with one focus to help our kids uh, to make sure that they have everything that they need to be prepared uh, for the school year. And, you know, we are blessed to have a, a mobile vaccine. We'll, we'll be a mobile vaccination site next Saturday making sure our kids 12 and up, the ones who are eligible to get the vaccine, if they choose, if their families choose for them to get the vaccine, that they are able to have access to get the vaccine. And so it's just a blessing to be able to bring, you know, enemies, so-called enemies and allies together um, with, all, with all that focus in building the world that we actually need right now while creating the infrastructure of the world to come for our young people. Um, that's this Saturday. Please, if you're out there, please support us and serve your city, D.C., dot org slash be the number two sb that's serve your city dc dot org 
slash be the number two SB. That's our back to school bash. We're just so proud and proud of bringing the city together. And of course, we're going to have, I mean, it's going, I mean, I don't know if everybody knows, it's just going to be a black picnic. You know, that's why I want to make sure it is. Big black picnic at the Eastern Market Metro Plaza on Saturday from 1130 to 430. I'll just bring in all these people together. Yeah, do not bring bad potato salad. That Don't do that to a black person. I don't have to worry about that. You're not going to play no games. <laughs> don't have to worry about me. But you know what? Ain't co opted me that, that bad. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing with raisins. <laughs> but Maurice, you know, this this thing about, you know, back to school. And I'm I'm glad that that this is being done. But there are some serious questions with the way the D.C. government and certainly the federal administration. And, you know, honestly, these ph- pharmaceutical companies are approaching sending kids back to school and the vaccine. Now, this is not an issue about whether, you know, whether people believe in the vaccine, whether they trust them or not. But but honestly, we've been talking about vaccinating kids, making the vaccines available and safe for kids for more than a year now. And the FDA finally approved the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine. and and I'm I don't know if there's approval for the other vaccines for kids younger than twelve. So we've got a situation in D.C. and I think across the country where elementary school kids are going back to school. They're expected to be back in school, and a lot of parents and a lot of teachers are questioning the city's uh, contingency plan to keep their kids safe. And and I mean, outside of organ, uh, organizations like Serve Your City and these kinds of efforts that are being done, I mean, what what are parents' recourse to keep their kids safe? Because I, I feel like this is just another end of the political spectrum where some people just aren't cared for by politicians. That's exactly right, Jackie. I, I would say to any parent, Please prepare to, to educate your child at home, given you know all the the unknowns that we're going to have in the next couple of months, and Lord knows how long after. But please prepare right now to do what you have to do to plan to have your child back at home. This is all about money. These decisions are all made based on the capitalist system that Sean is referring to and the need to make sure that people are being paid for just showing up and being in a dangerous building that doesn't have the necessary cleaning and preparedness, um, please just, all, any parent out there, tell them to prepare to educate your child at home once. That's what I would say. Yeah, definitely. I mean, big shout out to all the parents uh, preparing to, you know, send their children back to school. I mean, I also want to highlight, at least here in D.C., I mean, the only reason why <clears throat> the kids in this city weren't forced to go back to school much earlier is because of the struggle of teachers and unions and things like that, that, that demanded that there be some kind of a safety precautions put in place. And again, that's an argument that had to be made in so-called a progressive DC. So I think it shows you, like you're saying, Maurice, about how money is really the motivator there. You got to warehouse the kids so the parents can get back to work. So this is just a part of the same old exploitation of labor game that has been played throughout this entire pandemic up until this point and continues to this day. But, you know, I was looking at 
the uh, 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 flyer that you all have for this back to school bash this weekend, Maurice, where, uh, you know, you all have the hashtag we keep us safe, which is popular in the movement for black lives. And I think that this is just one example of that and something that we continue to see. And as the pandemic continues, as these issues with the schools and with homelessness and with housing and with hunger and with employment and with the economy, as all these interconnected issues begin, excuse me, continue to rage, we have to really begin to address ourselves to the question of how do we deepen our organizing? How do we become more serious, more precise in our politics, in our analysis, not for the sake of uh, uh, intellectual activity, but to better prepare ourselves to really address these literal life and death issues that are facing our communities, because this is the only way that will survive ultimately marching towards a new system. But we thank you so much, Maurice, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there for today. Here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be back tomorrow with an all-new episode. So as always, we'll see you next time. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.